What's up, podcast world? This is Chad. I'm back at you at The Foul Life. Thank you all so much for the continuous growth, the downloads, subscriptions. Hope you all are loving the diversity and guests and topics. We just laid down some really cool duck calling tips. We have plenty more duck and goose calling tips. And uh, we're actually going to gear up for that coming uh, big time in the latter part of July and all through August before y'all get ready to hopefully cross that border to Alberta, Saskatchewan, or Ontario, or Manitoba, and chase the migration as it starts to move down this way. We're excited for that. We're excited for today's episode. Today's episode of the Foul Eye Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Kershaw Knives. I like knives. I don't know if I'm a hoarder or just a collector or just a connoisseur. Um, I, I got to have a sharp blade. I have to have dependability. I carry knives on me everywhere I go. I have the best kitchen knives, in my opinion, ready to go at any time, both for the outdoor kitchen, the indoor kitchen, all the hunting camps. Every single time I'm in my blind bag, my toolbox, my glove compartment, the console of my Ford trucks, I like to have Kershaw knives close by. They give me that giddy feeling that I'm prepared, that I'm ready. They're dependable. I know that I'm going to be able to cut rope or twine if I need to build a blind with one of their saws and cut some branches off. Obviously with the farmer or landowner's permission always first, but if we're going to cut breast off of a duck or a goose or a tenderloin off of an elk or a deer or fillet a fish, maybe it's a striper out of the Sacramento river. Maybe it's a big old walleye out of one of the Minnesota clear lakes. I love Kershaw because they stand for quality, their innovation, their design and their dependability. They stay sharp. And I'm telling you, they are an unbelievable brand that supports our culture. The American outdoorsman, the provider, the fisher, the hunter. And today we have Mr. Dominic Aiello from the Kershaw brand. How are you, my brother? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Heck yeah, buddy. I see some uh, some uh, federal duck stamps behind you, maybe. some. Uh, I see a sprig over your left shoulder, my right, and I see your favorite duck, I assume, over your right shoulder, my left, the, uh, the Hollywood mallard, the smiling mallard, the American spoonbill. What's up with that? Are you big-time waterfowler? Absolutely. Uh, out in the out in the uh, the marsh as much as possible in the fall and winter and um, I don't know I'd say I'm out probably 30 days a season with me and the dog and maybe a buddy or two. What what kind of dog? Uh, black English Lab, big old blockhead on him. Oh, big old blockhead, a British Lab, huh? Yeah, English British Lab. Um, pretty well trained. He is, uh, you know, he, I did him, I trained him myself, and I would uh, say that he's certainly not as polished as a, um, you know, a kennel trained dog, but he is very well mannered. He doesn't whine, he doesn't yip, he doesn't bark in the blind when birds are working. He stays steady, gets the birds, bring them back to hand, and that's all I can ask for from him. So he does yeah. great. That's awesome. I, I'm infatuated with sporting dogs, man, especially labs. I'm in awe of them. Like they could be in a deep sleep and you whistle a little bit and they're like, you know how we are. We need our coffee. We, we got to shake the sleep out of us. We might need to do some air squats or some lunges or something to wake up the body a little bit, maybe some jumping jacks. It's amazing how a, a duck dog can go from deep sleep and snoring and dreaming like they do to literally on a, ret- a blind retrieve of 200 yards and nail it. I mean, they're just an amazing animal. Absolutely. The drive in a, in a, in a well-trained duck dog is second to none to, uh, to watch. I, I agree hundred percent. So let's get into this. Um, 
Do you echo my sentiments that I started this conversation with about the importance of a good knife at all times? Definitely. I think you, you, you nailed a, a lot of really important points that um, having a sharp blade on you helps ensure that whatever comes at you, you're prepared. And you may not need the knife for what that challenge or that hurdle is, but it's a tool that can help you in so many different things that you may have not expected. Um, and I think that's part of our mentality, I think is a good way to say that. Like, you know, you and I and people that love to do what we do, we feel like we can we can overcome any challenge that is in front of us. Um, and I think having a, a good pocket knife at your side in those adventures is just, it just speaks to that. And I love like the, the hanging knives with the lanyard. I just pull it out of, out of the sheath and I go to work, right? I put my index finger on the top of it and I literally go to work and I, it doesn't matter what I'm cleaning. There's a lot of different ways to, to butcher and, and process game, right? And everybody has their own way. Like we take some ridicule once in a while because somebody might see me doing a cleaning demonstration where I'm not keeping the skin on. And I'm like, well, this recipe doesn't entail the skin. And I'm like, I will keep the fat in the skin and I'll render it down and use it for other things throughout the, my, throughout the year, you know, keep it in the freezer. But there's so many different techniques, so many different ideologies of game and processing and butchering and all that. And it's such a huge part of being a provider and what we do of like, I understand the squeeze of the trigger and the anticipation of ducks and calling at them and calling Canada geese for speckle bellies or bugling in a big bull. The, 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 the flight of the arrow or the sending that bullet down range is awesome. And I'll always be unapologetic about it, but there's something at this point in my life about the culinary part of it, the bounty part of it, the table fare, the friends, the family, the camaraderie, pairing it with whiskey or wine or cold beer, or any kind of soda. If they got kids around, whatever it is, I take that very serious now, Dominic, and I want um, you know the, the listeners out there to to understand that Kershaw stands behind that with all of your different offerings. And I want to I want to start this a little bit by people could be intimidated because oh that knife's so sharp, so I got to be very careful with it. You always have to be careful with a knife. Sometimes I get going fast, and I've nicked myself with the Kershaw. I'm not going to lie, but tell me if I'm wrong, Dominic Aiello. A dull knife is way more dangerous than a sharp knife because you're going to have to press harder. You're going to have to manipulate it more. You're going to have to, you know, figure out different things to do to try to press it through that that breast or that skin. Or even if you're just cutting a log of deer salami or summer sausage, if your knife isn't ready, your 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 chances of injury go way up because you're going to put that knife in a position it shouldn't be in. You know what I'm saying? as you started down this train of thought, that was exactly uh, what came to mind and what I was going to bring up, but I, I'm glad you did it for me. You're absolutely right. You know, a sharp knife can cut you. I mean, I've, I've, I've cut myself just fiddling with knives. I can't tell you how many times, but usually because you don't have a lot of pressure behind a sharp knife, it's not typically a serious cut. But when you have that dull knife, that is, you know, where you're struggling to make that cut. And like you're saying, you're pushing harder, you're putting a lot of force into it. When it snaps free from whatever you're cutting, there's a lot of force behind that. And when that hits your finger, even though it's a dull knife, it's still something that's going to, you know, shear through skin. Uh, and that's where you get your severe injuries. Yeah. And it's, and, and people have to understand that, you know, 
all knives are going to lose an edge sooner or later, especially with a ton of use. So sharpening your knives and maintenance is key on this. I want to get into the culture of Kershaw and the story a little bit of what how did it begin? Tell me your history with the company a little bit, but just give me a little bit of the origin so our listeners have an idea of where you're located, what you guys stand behind, where the design, the name came from. Give me a little bit about the history of the company. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, Kershaw was started by Pete Kershaw. Um, he was from Oregon, worked for another knife manufacturer, um, decided to leave there and start his own his own knife company, which he did. Um he still here is here in Oregon has a has a very large ranch. He's standard traditional outdoors person that you would think of back from the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Um, but then we in the in the I would say it was either the mid '80s, maybe early '90s. We were bought by a Japanese company called Kai. Um, they were manufacturing our knives at the time, and so now we're part of uh, Kai Corporation. Our division is Kai USA. They're family-owned, fourth-generation family that that owns the brand, um, and we have several different knife or cutlery companies under the Kai USA umbrella. We have Kershaw, which uh, is our sport brand, Zero Tolerance as well, which is a, a premium pocket knife brand that's ours. And then we have in the kitchen culinary side, we have uh, Shoon Knives. And those are the Benelli of knives. Those are the ones that a guy like me like looks at and goes, someday I'm going to be good enough to use one of those. We were just talking about them. Should knives on the podcast um, on Tuesday, two days ago, we were talking about outdoor cooking and stuff. And I was talking about my goal is to, you know, be in that world someday. They're just so beautiful and they're so sharp. And they're just, they, I'm a huge, I, I, I think that, cooking and all of that there's a lot of different elements i'm a visionary with it i love to use the art of visualization and when i visualize i always am looking at my cuts how to cut the meat how to cut the vegetables how to chop how to do all the things that you learn at a culinary institute or some kind of culinary schooling um uh, a lot of mine is watching other kitchen guys or backyard aficionados as i call them uh work the knife but i also see a lot of people doing it to where i'm like ooh, like you shouldn't be doing that like you need to be doing it this way and i never want to act like the know-it-all but there is a right way to do it and when you start getting up there in that level of shit you know should knives and and some of the even the kai kitchen knives are awesome and you know working with your sporting brand kershaw like we have now um i think that technique and practice is everything. If you're going to be a good shotgun, you go to sporting clays and you shoot trap or skeet or, or actual sporting clays, or you, you might not be very instinctive when the ducks come in. It might take you a few years to get good at it, right? Well, with a knife, it's the same thing. And I think that people are so scared of it, of doing it the right way because their hands are so close. But if you take the time to learn on how to hold your fingers, how to hold your thumb, how to pressure the knife, how to let the blade guide itself, then you'll be like, oh man, the knife is doing most of the work. It's almost remote controlled with just a little touch of the finger. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, and there's certainly a lot of techniques that I'm still learning. And, you know, from a, a kitchen culinary aspect, it, you know, with the grain, against the grain, there's so many different elements that go into making, you know, like what you were talking about, that that amazing post-hunt uh, meal for you and, and friends and family. And I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people that don't hunt don't really understand maybe or don't appreciate is that you can have friends over and you can take some store-bought meat and you can grill it up or you can, you know, bake or, you know, whatever you want to do. And you can share uh, an excellent meal with your friends and family, have a good time. But 
when you are providing food that you went and got yourself and were part of the entire process with, uh, it's it's indescribable the level of enjoyment that you get compared to just going to the store, buying meat and cooking a nice meal. I couldn't say it any better myself. I always say, Dominic, that this is the coolest way to live life. And I don't, I'm not saying that other ways aren't neat, okay? But to live off the land, whether you're growing a garden or raising steers and cattle, sheep, bunnies, chickens, pigs, uh, whatever it is hunting fishing going out and honing your skill set i learned how to duck call my dog was trained or i I trained it myself i learned how to drive a boat i learned how to conceal a blind set up a blind read the barometric pressure read the forecast the wind the sun using of shadows ripples on the water chocolate milk effect dry land applications full body decoys keel holes ground blinds panel blinds there's so much that goes into this skill set and it's kind of like a carpenter opens up his toolbox he's like oh you need some crown molding Boom, boom, here's my tools for that. Oh, you need me to fix your toilet? And a plumber goes, oh, here's my here's my wrenches, and I'm going to roll with this. This is our toolbox. We hone this skill set. And we go out, and we're like, here they come, boys. Get ready. Get them. Bring it back. Here we go. Come on, Axel. Let's go. Put it back. Heel. Take it. Put it on the strap. And then it's like, here, after visualizing that scenario I just gave all night like a kid on Christmas Eve, now I'm sitting there in the blind going, I got a couple partners in town. I got some friends here. I got some family. We got the lodge owners tonight. We're going to invite some farmers from around the area. And I start to visualize, what am I going to do with this duck? What am I going to do with this duck? And the first thing that you need in that visualization process is the butchering part. And what do you need to butcher? Kershaw shears, Kershaw knives, Kershaw hatchets, Kershaw saws. What do you want in your arsenal to hone your skill set as a butcher now before you even process it or tenderize it or vacuum seal it or marinate it or dry rub it? You have to have that Kershaw knife or that saw or that mallet, whatever you or, or that uh, that axe. You know, you have to have a good pair of shears if you're going to cut off legs. Okay, you you might have a a small axe that you can do that kind of stuff. But I start to visualize, Dominic, and I get so passionate about it. I'm like, dude, I'm going to make the best duck dinner of my life tonight because of what you just said, Dominic. Like, I want to be the best hunter-fisher provider that God will allow me to be. And nobody should ever be like, I'm the best there is. Nobody can say I'm the best duck chef of all time or I'm the best duck caller of all time. I can kill ducks, but there's kids in arkansas that'll mop me up on a duck call they've been they grew up on them you know that was their pacifier right that's that's the truth so i just wanted to take what you said and take it a little bit further like my visualization goes from the keel the dog retrieve duck to hand on the strap license everything's there tag them out and then boom we're butchering skin on skin off rendering the fat we might pluck a whole duck we might take the legs off of mallards and specks and start a gumbo roux with our buddies from southern louisiana the cajun crew you know what i'm saying like that's how i think about it when i'm thinking about my knife definitely uh, i mean you can hear the passion there which I, I absolutely love and you know i think that's that's at the core of what makes waterfowling and waterfowlers just a different breed. You know, I mean, I, I, I hunt a lot of different things. I didn't, I started out with deer. Um, I didn't start duck hunting until, uh, I was, I was probably in my mid twenties and I'm, I'm breaking close to 40 now, sadly. Um, but when I got into it, I was like, Oh, it seems to be like a more social aspect of hunting. You know, you deer hunt, you're quiet all the time. You know, you're paying attention to the wind. There's a lot of very detailed things that go into it. 
And then you go into duck hunting in the first, and you think about it, you're like, oh, I can chat with my buddies. And then we see ducks and then we get serious. And then, you know, the dog gets the duck and then we chat and we have fun. Um, but then you start thinking about it as you start to progress and want to get better because you start out a lot of times and you're like, oh yeah, I killed a few ducks. That's awesome. I had a great time with my buddies. And you're like, okay, I want to better. Right. And so you start going through all the things that you talked about, how to hide better, understanding the weather, understanding decoy placement, understanding kill holes, all these different things. And then it goes even further and now you're into food you know there's so many elements to waterfowling that i think just are not there in other aspects of hunting and that's what makes waterfowling so great in my opinion uh, you nailed it again it's like the social aspect of it the socialization cooking biscuits and gravy in the blind or cutting up summer sausage like we talked about your dog telling stories singing songs then all of a sudden your dog's eyes go up or your eyes see them or you hear the whistling wings and it's go time shoot them Dog brings him back, put him on the strap, and now we start talking again, the camaraderie. But I've always said a lot of the times that there's different two thoughts. They're the levels of hunting to where it used to be piles makes miles. Got to get the limit. Got to get the, the picture with the big amount of ducks in it. And now it's like, here's two ducks, me and my partner, me and my daughter, my daughter and I, I should say. And then there's that duck on the Traeger. There's that duck being eaten at a table. I don't need the big pile picks. But at the beginning, you know, there's different levels of maturity in what you're talking about of like, I'm all about being the best there is. I'm going to be the best duck call. I'm going to win the worlds in Stuttgart or the world goose in Eastern Maryland. And then it's kind of like, I've done that. I've chased that. I don't really need to compete. I don't want the competition level of anymore. Now I'm going to hone my skill set back towards this. It might be cultivating land, farming for wildlife. It might be food plots. It might be farming for ducks or geese. And then it might be what you just talked about, that culinary part of it. So now you start to take the idea of what you just said. And I've always said this is like to kill a deer, you need an orange vest in most places and a 270 with a, with a shell. Okay. You need one bullet a lot of the times and you can shoot that deer at 300 yards. And I'm not saying that archery hunting, getting in a tree stand, farming for deer, trail cameras, scent control, your clothes. There's so much that goes into being a serious archer hunter. But when you start breaking it down, what you just said of the graduation levels of decoys and boats and UTVs and leases and public land and then water and then dry land and then rivers and then swamps and then flooded timber and then the marsh. And then is it deep water? Is it shallow water? Are you using floating decoys mixed with full body decoys? Are you having an ice hole with an ice eater? And there's so much that goes into being a consistently successful waterfowl hunter. If you want to get good at it, it's going to cost money. And that's why there's not as many duck hunters as there are deer hunters in the world or turkey hunters. And it's a lot of laws that you that go into the federal laws on top of the state laws and identification and and all of the different things that you need to know. There's you got to be pretty intelligent to not break the law on duck hunting if you go on a consistent basis. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And like you said, you know, there is a lot that goes into deer hunting. There's a lot that goes into elk hunting. I'm not trying to I wasn't trying to take anything away from that because, I mean, I'm a big time deer hunter, too. I you know out here in oregon we get like a 13 day season for our mule deer um and generally i take the whole 13 days off travel day on each side you know i'm, I'm in it to win it you know but uh, like you said there's there's just so much more intricate detail and and really a lot of complicated regulations especially when you're going from different states um it's it really can be overwhelming especially for someone new and I didn't come from, you know, my dad didn't hunt. My grandpa didn't hunt. It was something that really, I had a brother-in-law introduce me to it. But then from there, like at 16 years old, I was on my own. Um, and I didn't, I would say I didn't even really start getting 
pretty successful at, at hunting until I was in my early to mid twenties. Um, and I think, like you said, that it's a challenge for, for people to get into duck hunting because of all those different, it's a challenge to get into hunting in general because of the regulations. And if you don't have somebody showing you the way a mentor, things like that, but especially with duck hunting, like you said, you got to go into it with decoys. You don't necessarily have to go into it with a dog, but a lot of times then you might need a marsh rat or an aquapot or something like that. Uh, you need a shotgun. You got a, a case of shells these days is ridiculously expensive. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. There's the, 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 the arsenal. We're gear nuts as waterfowl hunters. I mean, I have over 450 goose calls. That doesn't even include my duck call collection, right? So like I am a gear junkie and I think that, you know, when the wildfowl gear issue comes out every August and you start looking through that, we're, we are, we're nuts about our gear and, and then to put it together to be successful. If you want to be overall successful at all of it, it's going to take years and a lot of investment. I promise you, if you want to be going to spring snow goose hunting, you're not going to do it with a hundred decoys. You need a thousand decoys. You need 1500 decoys. You need a, a nice truck and an enclosed trailer. We haven't even talked about our trailers yet and, and everything that goes into our double axle trailers. So there is a big intimidation and entry factor that goes in to all hunting, but I think more so with waterfowl hunting. And I've been elk hunting and I, you got to get in good shape, put your pack on, get on the treadmill, get on a Stairmaster, get on the, a real mountain and do your hikes every day. Understand your shooting and ballistics and your breathing and your climate and your altitude. And, and, and all, there's a lot that goes into being a good hunter in any of these, in any of these applications. But the, the culinary part that you get back to with the waterfowl, and, and I wanted to bring this up, is that the number one animal that I hear sucks to eat is always what? A duck or a goose. Oh, I can't eat that. It's liver. It sucks. And I'm like, what? Are you out of your mind? The French people have mastered culinary, right? French and Italians have mastered how to make food taste right. And they all cook duck. They all cook venison. They all cook fish. They all cook a, a lot of different animals. But when it comes to fowl, it's the number one thing that I hear in this of like, hey, y'all want to come over for duck dinner? No, man, I'm good. Y'all keep those ducks. And I'm like, well, what's your favorite duck recipe? Well, you put the duck on a piece of wood and you get it all sprinkled up with garnishes and then you put it in the oven. And when you take it out, when it's done, you throw the duck away and you eat the piece of wood. And I'm like, I've heard that a million times and it makes no sense. Like duck is awesome, right? So with Kershaw and these videos and all this content that we do, we are truly into this. Like we eat wild, we ate wild game for lunch today. We ate wild game for dinner last night. We're constantly incorporating wild game out of the box, unorthodox approaches to eating. And when, when we have our Kershaw knives there, my point is this, is that we work with Meat, the Meat Your Maker company with their grinders and their vacuum sealers and their de dehydrators and all that. I take a lot of pride in their equipment. When I put my Kershaw knives away, they're clean. There's no watermarks on them. It's like my, you know, I don't want, it's like a black truck. I don't want watermarks on it. We're getting it cleaned every day if we need to. The knives go back perfect. They come out of their sheaths and they're ready to go to work. And I think that if you take that approach and you, and you go back to your days of being an athlete, maybe 
What was the what did bowlers do? You walk into that bowling alley like in the movie Kingpin, and you're carrying that 13 pound three hole ball. You got your bag, your towel, your shoes. Nobody's messing with you, right? Nobody's gonna beat you. You're gonna freaking bowl a 280 that night. Baseball got this bag. You open it up. The balls are here. Your catcher's mask is here. Your gloves here. Your bats go down this long part. Gun cases. You know my billiard players. You go to a pool hall. These guys are nerds. They take this stuff out. That's how I look at it. If you take that pride in your equipment and you're driving to the billiards hall and you know you got your old trusty right here you've won every freaking you're a freaking what do they call that when you when you trick people what is that called uh god dang it i can't remember the, the word i'm getting too far out of touch here what was that what is it called when you like make it look like you're a bad pool player and then people want to play you and then you just smoke them you like sucker them in i can't remember what it's called but um if you think about it like that, like going to the pool hall with your billiard sticks and you pull them out of that case and you screw them together and now you get down on that felt and you win the tournament like Steve the Miz Miserac would do, that's what Kershaw means to me. When I take them out of their sheath, I'm like a ninja. I'm like a samurai, like a Jedi, right? I'm like the freaking Luke Skywalker with, my, with, the, what, with the lifesaver. Now look, that sounds dramatic. That sounds like a movie, but it is to me. Like I have a lot of passion for what those Kershaws are getting ready to do. And if you think of hunting that way, or growing your own food that way, and, and like my brother Clay and pulling all these vegetables out of the provider garden, if you think about how much work went into growing that garden and you just eat it as fast as you can, you can do that. And if it tastes good, fine. But I love the whole voyage, the whole journey, the whole experience from getting that vegetable or that meat on that counter, cutting it up and making it perfect for the people that are getting ready to enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think the word you were looking for is hustled. Hustler. Hustler. Remember Paul Newman in The Color of Money? Hustler. Oh, yeah. God, I'm an idiot. Hustler, not the Larry Flint hustler. I'm talking about being a billiards player, the hustler in the pool hall. But that's that's how I think of it, Dominic. Like, that's my stick in there. When I take it out of the sheath, the whole world's watching me. The whole world, man. When, when, you, when a baseball player carries his bats from the locker room to the dugout and they put them in there with their number on the knob, they're looking at it like the pine tar's on there. They're not splintered. They're ready to go. That is a game used, ready to hit a bomb and win the World Series bat. That's the pride you take in wild game cooking and culinary with your Kershaw knives. Yeah, and I think you know what you described there is a mentality. And it's a mentality that um, obviously – athletes of all levels have i mean you're a competitor right yeah um, certainly the most successful just take that to the umpteenth level and just have drive like nobody else um and, but i think as hunters there's certainly there's certainly different hunter personalities some people are just in it for the downtime for the recreation of it, and that's totally fine but then there's the people like you're describing they want to win. It doesn't matter what they're doing in life. It just happens to be hunting and it happens to be a provider. They're going to win. And, and you know, that's what you're talking about. And a lot of times in duck hunting, it takes that mentality to consistently be good and consistent, consistently perform to the level that makes other people go, dang, what's he doing that I'm not doing? Yeah, and you I don't know? want it to ever to come across this arrogance because I think that in hunting, we have to get the egos checked at the door. We have to stop the infighting. And I think that everybody has their way of doing it, whether they were taught by their dads or mentorship is so important. 
we got to make it our goal to get new blood into this. And if we're fighting amongst ourselves over private land versus public land versus watermark, the high watermark versus this field has got this many decoys in it, but you've killed a lot of ducks in it. So I'm going to go to the farmer and try to undercut you on that. We got to stop that because we got to get new blood into this. So we have to introduce it in the right way of like, this is the coolest lifestyle and culture in the world. We have the right to hunt, but it's also a privilege. Okay. We can get ourselves out of hunting by taking it for granted, breaking the law, losing our hunting licenses, trespassing, poaching, whatever it is. There's ways that you can mess this up for not just you, but your kids, generations that come after us. We have to do our best to show this in the way that I feel it was intended. And that is to eat wild game. And I'm not saying that every duck hunter out there has to be like, oh, I kill every, I, I eat every duck I kill. It's impossible sometimes if you're hunting every day. But we try, but you know what we get to do also? We get to share them with homeless shelters, feed the hungry activations. We get to give them to our friends and family legally. You know, at, we're not just giving them away to go kill another possession limit. We make sure that we do everything, you know, to the law, um, to the ump degree of the law and waterfowl hunting. Um, but I like to share it. And during this pandemic we just went through, right? We're coming off of how many people came to me and said, Hey man, you got any meat I could use because they couldn't get it in the stores. And so now you're like cooking wild Turkey for people. And they're like, this is wild. And I'm like, yeah, well, where'd you get it? Oh, I got that on the Sacramento river in California in a boat hunt. We were in a boat and we'd freaking sneak up on these different areas and we'd try to get one to gobble. Then we'd slowly climb up the hill and you get down and you try to cut them off and you get them to gobble again. Then you get your decoy. And I'm describing these hunts and they're like, I want to try that. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, I want to try that. So new people tried wild game and loved it. And it's that backing in from like, Hey, you might be intimidated by a gun. You might not have a bow. You might not know what a decoy is. You might not know how to blow a duck call, but you like the taste of that duck, right? You like the taste of that turkey. So you backwards, you go from the back to the front now, right? And that's gotten a lot of people in the last 24 months, in my opinion, involved in the outdoors. We saw a huge surge in fishing licenses and hunting licenses. And a lot of that had to do with hunters sharing their food with people that didn't hunt and them wanting to go do it. Yeah. You know, there's a couple great points here that I want to circle back on. Number one. Um, I think part of the surge, um, is absolutely food-based without a doubt. And I have a story about that, that I want to mention, but a lot of the reactivation I think that we saw was because people just get so busy. You, you know, you grow up hunting, for example, you know, you're, you're 14, you're out there all the time, you're 16, then, you know, high school, you get interested in girls or, or maybe guys, whatever the case may be, you know, cause not just dudes hunt. Um, and then you go off to college and you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so invested in my studies. Maybe I can get back and go out with dad a couple of times. And then you, you know, you get married, you have kids and it just is like, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. But I've got, I've, you know, I've got kids baseball practice or soccer practice. And so I think what we saw is that, you know, there was no concerts, nobody could travel. And all these people were like, well, I'm stuck inside and all I got is work and being inside. Well, shoot, I haven't gone hunting in six, seven years. And we saw a lot of reactivation too, which I thought was great. Um, that's all. That's a great point, and I totally agree. Um, and then, you know, on the food aspect, I've got a really good buddy. He's 52 now. The guy's in the best shape of any 52-year-old I know. He he can smoke me all day long on the mountain. Um, but he didn't start hunting until he was like 40, and he he comes from a, a very liberal background. His dad was a physician. They never had guns in the house. Like all, you know, typical type of thing you think of an urban liberal. 
Um, and then at one point he was introduced to a wild game meal and he was like, this is amazing. I love this. And he's like, can I get more of it? But then he kind of went through this process in his brain. He's like, why am I asking for more of this? If I'm going to eat it, I should be able to go get it myself and, and be involved in that process. 100%. And, you know, I think that's where we, we share a lot of common ground with the hunter as well as the non-hunter. Everybody understands food. Everybody understands the importance of nutrition. And I think even if people like can't do it themselves, they even admittedly, like, you know, I think this is awesome. I couldn't go shoot that deer myself. Or I couldn't go shoot the duck myself. As we share those meals, we open up more people to protecting our way of life. Because like you said, at least, you know, I know there's, um, I think I'm going to get this number wrong, but I think it's 27 states have a constitutional right to hunt and fish right now yep um oregon is not one of them we technically our our ability to go hunt is is a privilege it's like driving basically you can lose it at any point and not from just breaking the law just because people can take it away from you you know we have in oregon we have the ability that anybody can go to the secretary of state file a petition get signatures and put something on our ballot that people everybody gets to vote on and right now we have um, some animal rights activists for the last two years have been trying to get something on the ballot that would outlaw all hunting, all fishing, all all ranching lifestyles with livestock. It's ridiculous that th there's people out there that want to do that to us. So we need to take it upon ourselves, like you said, bring in new blood. But we also need to make sure that we're um, educating the people around us as it's just not about going and killing an animal. Certainly the chase the you know the 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 feeling of success all of that is incredibly important but not to them you know what's important to them is is the food aspect and and we we have to do a better job at that i agree and i think we have to be better ambassadors and think about it's not the 70s anymore where you drive home with your mule deer head hanging out you know on your truck hood and I don't really know if we should have been doing that. You know, we don't need to give anybody, we don't need to apologize for anything, but we also don't need to give anybody any ammo um, to come at us. And I think that if we fly the flag right and we showcase this as we're not just going out and murdering Bambi per se, this is what predator management does. This is what wildlife management does and herd management does and the ecosystem and what would happen if there wasn't hunting and why are there so many animals out there in the first place in Oregon? Well, let's think about why you have so many geese on Savi Island. It's because of conservationists and hunters putting in the money and duck stamps and all of the different organizations, whether it's Delta or DU or California Waterfowl or Mule Deer Foundation or Rocky Mountain Elk or Fanaz or Safari Club International. All of these hunters come together because we have a ton of respect for the resource and compassion for the animals in which we pursue. So I want to show people like, hey, it is fun to hunt and we do kill, but here's why. And that elk or that duck was living their best life in God's country. And they were taken ethically and legally by a man or woman that honed their skill set to get them in close and intimate and harvest them successfully. And now it's not over then. They gave up their life so we could have that high and rich protein diet. It's the food of the gods. It's, there's no doubt about it. You give me a venison backstrap and you'll, you'll see the biggest smile in the world. Okay, so you, we have to do that. We have to showcase like, hey, know where your food comes from. If you're going to say take away hunting and ranching, then I hope that you say, well, I'm a vegan and I don't believe in that. Well, I want you to go study what happens when these farmers are tilling up these food, these these fields to get your vegetables how many mice are dying 
I want you to tell me how many worms are dying when you are going after all of these vegetables that you saw, way more than hunters kill. So I want everybody to keep that in consideration that there's, there's always, there's always an argument from our side that there's no life that's ever safe when it comes to humans eating and becoming, you know, making that an edible source of their dietary, their nutrition program, whether it's cattle at 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 a slaughterhouse in Kansas or a chicken farm or pigs or hunting or fishing ethic, ethic cleaning or ethic killing comes with all of that. And I'm telling you that there's nobody that's ever going to persuade me that hunting is a bad form that should be outlawed. You'd have to be absolutely crazy of what would happen to wildlife if it wasn't for hunters. And that's what the antis refuse. It's not that they don't get it. They get it. They just have the money and the lobbyists out there to go and present this to different Congress or whatever it is, different state level agencies or politicians to get it on the ballot because they just want to cause havoc. They know damn well what hunters do for the ecosystem and for the wildlife populations. You show me the National Wild Turkey Federation and and the wild turkeys in this country from Texas West and how they've thrived in this country now or the elk on the mountain or the Canada geese and all the different flyaways or the ducks being at an all-time high. It's because of hunting, not because we don't kill animals. You have to make room for the next year's hatch, period. It's just evolution. Humans die also, okay? We don't live forever. We have a lifespan of 75 years and we're gone. Some of us are lucky and get to live past that. Hopefully we have our wits about us. But please don't tell me that hunting is bad for the conservation or for the environment. Yeah, and, and you made a great point. You know, no farmer is going to let a deer, for example, eat the lettuce crop or the cabbage crop. Or, you know, I don't know how it is in every state. But again, here in Oregon, farmers, if they show damage, our state has a constitutional requirement to address damage by ungulates with deer, elk, you know, so they can get a kill permit from our state wildlife agency if they're showing damage on the crop you know what they kill it and it goes to a food bank which is great but uh you know i not i know not every state's like that so certainly a farmer is going to protect their best interest and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with agriculture or ranching because certainly we have to feed people that that certainly don't have the ability to do it themselves or or even don't have the interest in doing it themselves i don't think everybody needs to feel that they have to hunt or they're some lesser person no, it's not for everybody, but it's for me, and I want I want to be able to do it. Um, and like you said, uh, there's just so many benefits from a conservation funding standpoint, from a vested interest in protecting our wild places, right? Like without somebody that has a vested interest in protecting the river from pollution, protecting the mountain from being developed, uh, you know, all these things. If you don't have a vested interest in it, you're not gonna advocate for it, right? And that's what, that beyond conservation funding, that's what that's what hunters and anglers and trappers and, and all, all different walks of, you know, traditional recreation do. They're advocating for protecting what we have because we love to be in it and we love to pursue it. Uh, and I think that's another aspect that people don't understand. A lot of times people just think, oh, you know, in news stories, they'll say this animal, you know, faced extinction because of hunting. But hunting back in the 1900s versus hunting today is it, it, not even the same thing. That was all commercial market hunting back then. It's not what it is today. Um, and, you know, we could go on all day about this, but I think our messaging certainly has improved greatly over the years. I think we still have we still have a long ways to go. Um, but, but, yeah, I. I'll, I'll stop there, I guess. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I love that you're so educated on this because it's it's the truth, man. I'm telling you that it, you you take away hunters in New York 
and you already have all these people complaining about how many white-tailed deer there are in their apple trees. They're going through windshields. Aunt Bunny just ran over one last night, messed up her whole front quarter panel on her truck. Somebody went through the windshield because they hit a buck on I-90 in eastern Montana. You want to see it really out of control? Try to take hunting out of the picture and see what happens with wildlife. Not just overpopulation, but then disease sets in. And then you'll wipe out the whole herd. You'll wipe out the whole flock. There's there's scientific data. You, uh, let's end it by this before we go into a couple more Kershaw things. Don't vote with your heart. Don't get sad because you think Bambi's dying. Don't vote with emotion. Vote with scientific data. Go to the ballot boxes and actually educate yourself beforehand. Before you go to pull that lever and cast your vote, vote with scientific data of what really is going on with wildlife and how they're being kept in check and why so many of these populations are flourishing right now. Get the scientific data and get the facts and vote with science, okay? You don't go out and lose weight because you just wake up one day and go, you know what? I think that I'm too fat right now and I'm just going to lose weight because it's what everybody's doing. No, it's scientifically proven that obesity is bad for the human body. It's true. That's the truth. It's scientifically proven that drinking too much alcohol is bad for your liver. It's scientific. So are you going to go out and say, I'm not going to do this because I don't like the feel of it anymore? Or are you going to say, I really do enjoy drinking, but I've been doing it too much and it's scientifically proven this is bad for me. I need to stop. There's scientific data behind anything that if you really take the time to research and educate yourself on. And this one that you just brought up, Dominic, is huge in our eyes because we do have to get our messaging even better than it is now, even though, like you said, it's gotten a lot better. But we've got to vote with scientific data. We have to quit voting with emotions because it's not going to work you're going to tell me that oh we got cougar hunting outlawed in california oh really you don't think that people are still killing cougars in california you know who's killing them the government and you know who what they're doing with them they're going out and just burying them in a hole in a mountainside and you know who's losing on that the taxidermists the hotels the gas stations the restaurants the cafes the grocery stores the hunting licenses going to the government to help maintain the wildlands oh but hunters can't do it but we were yeah. keeping them in check. We were keeping the population in check. Well, the cougar population is out of control. They're hurting our kids. They're eating our dogs. Well, that's because you can't have your cake and eat it too. So let's yeah. let's get the scientific data and let's really showcase what hunting means to this to the overall picture and the overall ecosystem. Talk to me real quick, transitioning, Dominic, because we can go on that. I just, well, I mean, when me, I get, I'll go for let it. Me get one, let me get one more in here. And then, yeah, absolutely, we can move on. Uh, you know, one thing that I like to mention to people that are like, oh, you kill animals, right? And it's like, okay, like you said earlier, every animal is going to die. They certainly are going to die before us as humans die. They have a much shorter lifespan. If you're a deer, would you rather live a natural life in the forest or on the mountain or whatever the case may be and have a bullet or an arrow hit you and you're done? You're done within a matter of, sometimes almost instantaneously sometimes maybe a couple minutes right but you're it's very quick and you didn't know it was coming or would you rather be chased down until you can't run anymore because you're overheating and you have to stop running and a wolf comes hamstrings you you go to the ground and they literally eat your guts while you're still alive which one's a better life for you i think i know which way i would go there's not even a question about it i know which way i'd want to go 
And now you can also look at it from a ranching standpoint. Would you rather be a cow in a pasture versus a deer? And I mean, again, there's nothing against nothing against livestock and ranchers like that. Totally. Uh, it's needed. But if you just want to compare the animal life to animal life, I think people can understand that. And deer so, live deer live their best life and cattle. I'm pretty sure that cattle would take that that, you know, that slaughterhouse at two years old, three years old, then sitting in a snowstorm and freaking weathering the storm until you die of natural causes. And nobody gets to take care of themselves or their family or their communities with all of that high protein beef, whether it's ground or the ribeye or the tenderloin. I mean, I'm telling you, just science makes sense. Science makes it make sense. So just try to vote by getting the scientific data. Talk to me about the leak. Why do I love the leak so much? Is it absolutely the fan favorite of all Kershaw customers, employees like yourself? I love the leak. What's up with the leak? L-E-E-K, the leak. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, the leak is is one of our longest standing models. That and the blur have probably been the most popular um, since their uh, release in the marketplace in the mid 90s. You know, uh, assisted openers, assisted folders uh, were not really a thing. We really changed the pocket knife industry when we came out with assisted opening technology back in the in the mid 90s. Um, the leak certainly wasn't the first one that we came out with, but at to this point, it's been 17 years and it's still one of our strongest sellers every single year. And, you know, to your to your question, I think what so many people are drawn to that knife for is because it's so in it's not intrusive in your pocket space. It's very slim. It's very small. You hit the flipper on it. The knife fires open and it's a really thin blade. It's really pointy. It has a lot of everyday use. Now, it's not something I would take, you know, if I was working uh, as a framer, it's probably not the, the, the knife I would have in my pocket. I'd want something a little beefier. But you think of just everyday people that may work in an office or you're a FedEx driver, you, you know, something like that. You have you know, one phone, I have two phones, one for work, one for my person. I have a carry pistol that I, that is always with me. I've got my wallet. I've got my keys, which has my truck key fob on it. My wife's truck key fob pocket real estate is a real thing, you know, and, and that knife is so small and slim. It just fits in your pocket and doesn't take up a lot of room. And it works day in and day out. Like I love the shape of the blade and I love how you can transition with it so easy. It's just a very dependable. And like you said, it's sleek, it's athletic. Um, it's like how I talk about the super black Eagle three. It's just, I'm like, how could they make the super black Eagle two any better? Well, they did it and they keep blowing my mind. And that's what y'all do with the leak. And I'm like, I don't know. Can Kershaw ever top the leak of the way it feels in my hand? Because I can rip through ducks with that. You know, if I pluck this, the feathers off of a duck breast and that way that that knife goes through the skin all the way down to the tenderloins up against the breastplate, getting all that breast meat shaped really close to where you're seeing more white of the bone than red meat left on it. And boom, right into the freaking salt water or whatever kind of bath I'm giving it until I rinse it off and vacuum seal it or cook it that night. Uh, you don't need to age ducks, Dominic, to make them taste good. We've proven this many times. Duck meat can taste good within five minutes of that duck being shot. I promise you. And it's almost like sushi, like duck tartare. I'm talking like almost raw. Duck meat is so good when it's at like maybe 115 degrees. A lot of people like eating it at 129, and I'm good with that too. But duck meat is so good, and the leak has provided us with so many unreal hunts. This last season, we ripped through so many ducks and geese with the leak. What um what is your favorite all around game knife on the in the Kershaw offering? Um, 
you know of of our folders i would say probably the um the launch eight which is a automatic stiletto i mean if you can think of a blade even thinner than the leak this one is that um it slices extremely well i just love and our automatics you know you hit the button on them and they just snap open there's something that just feels really cool in your hand um about a, a powerful opening mechanism like that which the leak is great the leak is assisted opener it works like every time you hit the flipper it opens um, and I think that's why a lot of people also gravitate to that as new knife owners too, because uh, it's just there's it's hard to screw up that opening system. Um, but you know, I, there's there's so many good knives. I think that's really something that uh, I don't think I know. That's something that is really uh, Kershaw does so well. You know, we have so many different people in the knife world. We have people that are knife collectors, knife enthusiasts, as I call them, that really like premium high-end type products. Um, just like some people like nice watches or, or, or jewelry, things like that. We have, you know, people that just beat up their knife in construction and, you know, they, they go through so many different knives a year. They don't want to buy something super expensive. We have so many different knife users in the marketplace and we cater to all of them. And I don't think there's very many there's certainly only a handful of knife brands that attempt it. And I think we do it the best. I would never, ever argue that you guys do do it the best. And I, I, I have yet to use this knife. I have to use this knife. Is this going to be a good knife for me if on smaller game, like a duck or a goose, the stiletto launch eight. Um, absolutely. That's a, it's like a three and a quarter inch blade. So it'll even on a, you know, a big Canada goose, you'll get all the way down along the breastbone on that. Okay, I'm gonna need to hit you up for one of these. I need to, I need to try it. I'm looking at it right now. It's beautiful, and it's and it's a thinner blade than the than the leak. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to think of a tip that could be prone to breaking if you're not careful when you're doing a pierce, that it's that thin. Okay, so what knife do I reach for when I have? a rockfish on the east coast or what we call a striper out west here i'm in the sacramento river i want to make my buddy brad forsyth striper chowder tonight what knife am i reaching for you're definitely going for one of the fillet knives um you know probably the nine inch would be a good choice nine inch you know nine inch straight or nine inch curved depending on your preference do you do a lot of filleting uh not with that particular type of fish fish i do salmon fish quite a bit uh i do black rock fishing which is kind of you know for those maybe on the east coast that aren't familiar with it it's like a it's like a largemouth bass of the ocean i guess um then there that's a white meat really mild things like that uh, and I, I certainly do some bass fishing too just for fun and i i'm not ashamed to say that i've eaten a few of them in my lifetime and probably will eat some more over the course of my life but not necessarily the number one table fare I love the knives. I love what we talked about with the culinary part of this. If you had two mallard ducks on your countertop right now, and you could either, they're just laying there, right? They just were killed. Are you fully plucking them? Are you breast out with the skin and fat on? Breast out, no skin and fat. Tell me your recipe that you're going to cook for your wife tonight. Yeah, you know, I certainly still have... um I'm learning to do in the in, in the culinary aspect. I think I said that early on. I, I've definitely come a long way since I was in my 20s. Um, we've we've tried a lot of different recipes. I think right now my personal favorite is it would be skin off breast. And I know 
some people say that's a sin to 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 leave, take the skin off of a of a fatty mallard. Um, then put it in the crock pot with some different uh, some some diced tomatoes, some seasoning, and and end up getting them to a point where they shred like pulled pork and do street style tacos with them. There's uh, nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with um, we in the provider cookbook. We have the pulled goose sandwich in there, which is the exact same recipe. My buddy Joe Robinson, he works for the Department of Natural Resources as a biologist in the state of Michigan. He taught me this in Ontario one time. It was me, him, and Fred Zink up there with a bunch of guys hunting, and we were hammering the Canada geese, and we're going to eat them. And he taught me this crock pot method back then. You could do it in different types of pots. Now I like to use foil tins on the Traeger with low heat with covered in foil and, and get those juices going. You use something that's high in acidity, like a, a real strong, um, like a apple cider, not apple juice, not half apple cider, but real apple cider or like a real high end soda, like a Dr. Pepper, Coca-Cola that's got high acidic that will break down that meat and that slow cook and then add the vegetables. But then you take it out, add your barbecue sauces, add your onion bun, your cheese, your pickles. People are like, this is pulled pork. And I'm like, no, that's Canada goose. And there's no filler in there. There's no pork fat added. There's nothing like that. That's a hundred percent Canada goose. And you're eating it, and we killed it this morning. And I went, wow, Joe, I'm going to always remember this. And I took it from his crockpot recipe, started trying to master it with the foil and the Traeger and the right heat and the right lo- length of cook, and bam, it's in the – it's in the. Uh, and you could use a pressure cooker. You could use a crockpot. You could use a Traeger. It's uh, a bunch of the different things are mentioned in the provider cookbook, but I absolutely love that. And then you mentioned street tacos. Um, I got buddies here that we will – take uh have contests of who will cook the the best street tacos and our producer right behind these sliding doors tom has the record for the eating the most at 17 in one lunch here uh and those were those were snow goose street tacos so i know what you're saying i absolutely love getting creative like that man there's nothing wrong you know a lot of times i'm like man it's a crock pot cheating and it's not it's just a different way it's handy you might not have a lot of time. You can let it sit all day. I absolutely love that application. So Dominic Aiello, Kershaw Knives, the Kai USA brand, K-A-I-USA. Absolutely incredible family of brands. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for us here at the Foul Life Banded Brands, all of our podcasts, TV shows, social media. Any closing words, my man? You know, just everybody keep living the dream and uh, just try and educate as many people around you. That's that's the key to our long-term success is is having the support of people that that don't participate but understand why we do and and appreciate our passion. So thanks for having me on and uh, hope we can do it again. Can we can we uh, hunt together this fall? Maybe maybe a little factory tour. I want to see the sharpening techniques. I want to talk to some engineers. I want to talk to some designers. Maybe talk to a few of the builders and see how many band aids that they go through in an average week of, of being around the Kershaw Knife Factory. Man, I appreciate your time. But hey, what do you think about hooking up? And I don't know if Oregon's the state, but let's get on a hunt this fall. Yeah, let's do it. If nothing else, let's get you out to the factory. We can definitely show you the floor and and get you talking to designers and and learn all the ins and out from from behind the scenes well let's talk about it off camera about maybe a canada goose hunter you know oregon again you got to take some tests up there you got a lot of different subspecies of the canada goose i have some unbelievable mounts right behind this door again that are off of uh off of the savvy island some really little tiny cacklers but you know there's a lot of different illusions up there and different different subspecies of the canada geese that you know once the quote is hit they kind of 
kind of shut down the goose season. So let I'll get with you on the education part of that and if there's still a test and what the route is, but I'd love to hunt Oregon again with you, my brother. Sounds good. Please tell everybody at Kershaw, thank you. That's Dominic Aiello, Kershaw, Kai USA. Thank you all so much for listening to the Foul Life podcast and supporting all of our partners and sponsors that support our culture and lifestyle of the American hunter. Check out brand new episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life coming at you into June, beginning of July 2022, exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. We're all over the map. We're starting in California, then we go to Wisconsin. We're in Oklahoma. We're in Texas. We're in Arkansas. We're in Idaho. We're in Wyoming. We're in Nebraska. Nebraska. We're in Kansas. We're in California. I think I said that, but all over the place. Can't wait for y'all to see it. Send us a DM at info at thefowllife.com and let us know what you think and check out our sponsor page. Hit on that Kershaw link and go check out all of their unbelievable engineering knife knife designs. They're absolutely the best on the market. Thank y'all so much for listening to the Foul Life podcast. We're going out. I'm going to go out with Billy Gibbons, my buddy, Billy Gibbons. I'm thinking sharp. I'm thinking Sharp Dressed Man. This is ZZ Top. Billy Gibbons, take us away. That little band from Texas. Thank you all for listening to the podcast.